Scripture this morning comes to us from John's Gospel. This is uh, the last part, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. Let us hear God's word together. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, said Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. <coughs> Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the night side of the on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciples, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he <coughs> tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. <coughs> Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. These are God's words for God's people. Thanks, Thanks be to God.
and loved. We come to the sacred space to worship, to grieve, and to celebrate the risen one. I come to you once again this same morning with the same prayer that I offer every morning before I preach. That you once again let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Open our ears to hear this word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our understanding in the most unimaginable ways so that we may continue to serve you now, today, and always. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I would have changed my title. But I'd already given it to Ellen, so we're stuck with it. And as you work with the text, and as you live in the week that you're working with the text, it kind of changes and it morphs, right? And as um, I lived life this week, I would have called this sermon Breakfast with Jesus. And as I remembered our Women of Easter group, so I'm going off script a little bit and I'll come back to it. Jesus sat with Mary and Martha, right? And Jesus scolded who? Betty. Martha. Martha. For doing what? For getting after. The business of the house and cooking and, right? For being focused on? Working. Working and women's work, right? What did he do in this text? He told well. No, today's text. What did he do? He made breakfast for the disciples. And I just think it's really, really interesting um, how God works through old, really old texts. Like perhaps the oldest text that we really use in a modern way, in daily or weekly ways. Um, and I bought this book, Ryan and I were first dating, and I bought this book in Kansas City before I went to divinity school at this hipster used bookstore. And it's by Richard Ringham. It's called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. <laughs> then this guy, Jesus, this divine savior, human, Everything made breakfast for the disciples. And then a few weeks ago, so we say that the only, I think it's really interesting. We say that the only kind of connotation of him doing some sort of womanly or female thing in the Bible is that, um, do you remember when I preached on when he was this mother hen? I don't know if anybody remembers that sermon. And it's said that that's the only moment in the Bible where Jesus kind of has feminine kind of things. I say when he made his disciples breakfast, that's also kind of woman imagery, where he calls his disciples in and he makes them breakfast. And he says, look, we're going to have this meal together. And I think it's really, really interesting how he comforts them with a meal. And then later, there's all these other, the meal is so important. When he shows them his wounds in the upper room, and he proves to them he's human by showing them his wounds, and then he says, have you got any fish? Can you feed me? 
There are all these ways that the meal is so important to him. And as a church, what is our mission statement? Who can just say it? Nourish body. I knew I'd hear it from Lynn in the back. She's the quietest one in the room, but she has that mission statement down. And it doesn't just mean fluffy, right? It's not just a fluffy thing that we're doing. We really mean that we're going to feed people, right? At least in part. We're not going to, you know, pay their grocery bill all the time, right? But we really mean it. And Jesus really means it in that moment, too. How many fish does he kind of help them provide? Did anybody catch it? 153. Someone caught it. <laughs> right? Someone said 500, but no. Yeah. 153, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not, that's not chunk change here, folks. Okay. So now I'm going to preach the sermon I actually wrote. But that's just kind of what this morning, like, was coming to me. So this week, we are in week three of the seven weeks of Easter time. And this is kind of the last story of Jesus appearing to his followers. The season's four remaining weeks explore Jesus' teaching is about faith and intimacy with God. And the lectionary, this is lectionary text, which is real weird to me because this is kind of intersecting all that we're doing in our church right now. We are doing a crop walk. We are doing, there's food happening in our kitchen. This is our mission statement. And John 21 is sometimes called an epilogue to John's gospel. Ryan kind of talked about that before he spoke about it. And since the concluding verses of John 20 feel so much like an ending to the story, it's kind of strange, in that earlier chapter, Jesus kind of reappears to Mary Magdalene in the garden outside of the tomb, and then twice to the disciples in the house of Jerusalem, showing them his wounds, giving them the Holy Spirit, and commissioning them out into the world to proclaim, forgive, and to heal as God has sent me, so I send you. John is organized around the seven astounding signs, the first of which is the water into abundant wine into Cana. Some of you have heard me talk about my pilgrimage to Israel, and the wine in Cana is horrible. So, I mean, it is cool. It's this magical thing that he does, but don't get jealous over the wine. So the epilogue of John 21 returns to this theme of abundance. So that's why this 153 is a big deal. They didn't need 153 fish, but it feeds into this abundance theme. That's why there had to be so many fish. It's this theme of abundance in John. So it's about bountiful love and mercy of grace upon grace. He could have done 20 or 30 fish. That would have been enough for breakfast, right? But a hundred and some, that was abundance. So here's the story in a nutshell. Just as Mary mistook the risen Jesus for the gardener, here too the disciples fail to recognize him, at least as first. The story suggests his voice is somehow different. He calls to them twice from the beach, and they respond and follow his advice without realizing who he is. Does anyone else find that strange that they just do what he says, even though they don't know who he is? I don't just, I mean, that's just me. I don't just do what people say without knowing who they are. Then, only the astounding catch of a fish prompts the beloved disciple to recognize him. They're like, hey, last time we caught this many fish, wait a minute, <laughs> right? So likewise, John includes a cryptic line during the breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. So if they were so sure it was him, 
why would it occur to them to, to dare ask who he is? So for that matter, why would it occur to John to include the lie in the story? The verse only makes sense that the risen Jesus looks significantly different than the Jesus they're accustomed to. So he probably didn't look like Jesus. And yet, different as he may appear, he nevertheless is recognized by his companions over a breakfast of bread and fish. So remembering perhaps the bread and the fish, which they fed a crowd of 5,000 in John 6, Jesus is back, but he's in a different form. So it's perhaps the bread, the fish, and the voice that caused them to remember him, whatever form he's in. So it's the meal, potentially, that makes Jesus recognizable. So for me, what's most odd or revealing about this story is that notwithstanding the fact that in the previous scene, Jesus has just commissioned the disciples as apostles, here we find Peter, Thomas, James, John, and two other disciples fishing on the Sea of Galilee, but it's called Tiberias, as though they've simply returned to their old lives. Now, did they lose their nerve? They were supposed to go do what he told them to do, not go fishing. So no wonder, A, they weren't catching any fish. That's not what he told them to do. Or are they confused and unsure about where to begin? And so they retreat to the place they know best to get their bearings. They just go back to fishing. Or rather, are they ashamed at how badly they botched things when it mattered most? They all deserted Jesus in the end, one dishonorable way or the other. But Peter, of course, is kind of the deserter in chief. After defiantly vowing he would never, ever, ever, ever deny Jesus, and then doing exactly that how many times? Three. There we go. His shame must have been bone deep. And paradoxically, Jesus' resurrection likely made it even worse, both because it highlighted his lack of faith and because it brought him face to face with the person he abandoned. Now, sure, Jesus initially greets the disciples in Jerusalem with peace be with you, which indicated he was cool with everything. But Peter was probably humiliated. Perhaps that was, that's what sent him home, head down to more familiar shores. And so the risen Jesus pursues them from Jerusalem to Galilee, saying something like, I knew I'd find you here. Back to your old habits, empty hopes and empty nets. You're worried you've let me down, that you've been disqualified, but I chose you. Do you really think I didn't know your weakness when I called you? I knew you better than you knew yourselves, and I called you and taught you and sent you anyway. Now I send you again. So he filled their nets, told them to stop thinking in terms of scarcity and limitations of what you can't do. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So he gave them bounty. Look at all these fish overflowing. Let's eat, take courage, go. So three times denied Jesus. So now three times Jesus asks him to profess his love. And the way that Peter answers is poignant almost unbearably. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
But of course, Peter, his shame, he's aware that what Jesus knows is that Peter is foolish and weak, a denier and a deserter. And that knowledge makes it all the more striking that Jesus' directive is crisp and clear. Feed my sheep. If you love me, make that love tangible. Go and care for those that I love. You, the one who denied and deserted me, I still choose you, the one I want to feed my flock in my place. And this is kind of a signature move for Jesus. And we see it in Acts as well as in John. Just as he took one of the worst things in the world, the cross, and turned it into one of the best, the tree of life. So now he recruits the worst disciple in the world, sometimes us, here in this Peter, to be a cornerstone of the church. In this story, Peter, today, me, us, right? And a champion for this new movement. Jesus chooses Saul, a notorious persecutor of the movement. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And turns his heart into Paul. This story, this gospel story, teaches us that there is Eastertide good news. God is turning the ancient world upside down. Or rather turning this upside-down world right-side up, hinging of redemption. The dreadful cross and the tomb for a shepherd, a denier, and a deserter, for a champion, a murderous persecutor. The upshot of these mind-boggling reversals are twofold. First, they evoke the inclusive embrace of God's love and action, for if God can redeem the worst of creation, surely God can redeem all of us. And second, they invoke a radical character of God's redemptive mercy and act as a check against Christian judgmentalism, against others and ourselves. For if the Roman cross, Peter and Saul are with God's loving mission, we dare place no one, including us, outside that circle. We, like Peter and all the rest, will doubt ourselves and even Jesus' ability to resurrect us personally in our church. But Jesus will not let us go. Though we may waver, Jesus continues to believe. God knows our shortcomings, and God calls and sends us anyway. God knows our fears and still looks us in the eye and says, three times. I'd say 300, 3,000. Feed my sheep. Put your love into action. For you are made in the image of God, the God of love in action. This is the life you're made for. What does this mean for us, for new disciples? Pause. Because I thought some more about this this week. We'll get back to that. Have another reflection. So when and where did Jesus look, learn to cook? Right? Because he scolded Mary and Martha, so he didn't learn 
chosen food featured heavily throughout the gospel and it's central to his ministry. And I never saw that dude cooking. And I'm kind of mad about it. I mean, I was. And then I looked at this text again. We see him breaking bread. We see him giving out food. We see him. We don't ever see him gutting a fish or seasoning it with like Zatarans or what's that Old Bay stuff or Tony, Tony Satchery's. I really like that from New Orleans. We don't see him mixing the flour and wet ingredients. He doesn't knead the dough. He doesn't bake over a fire. And I'm like, dude is always eating. <laughs> but in the resurrection, we have this really detailed scene of him cooking bread and fish over a fire. And that's kind of like, and if you look at um, the scene with Tamar, and forget the rape, but just she makes this sick food for him. And that's kind of what he's making here. And I'm like, well, where did he learn how to do that? And the, while the disciples are laboring out on the water all night, suddenly he's transformed into Samwise Gamgee, this faithful hobbit from the Lord of the Rings, who is cooking for those traumatized by this journey. Cooking is a resurrection activity. So God is on the beach cooking from scratch. So a friend of mine decided among some of the other things that Jesus did, but it's not written down, which is a whole lot of stuff. So for all of you that say, this is not in the Bible, <laughs> there's all sorts of things that are not in the Bible. And so we're just going to have to agree to disagree. If you think this didn't happen, that's fine. And as the final verses of this gospel, metaphysics and extraordinaries that so frequently happen in his teachings before his death, come have breakfast, feed my lambs, care for my sheep, feed my sheep, follow me, he boils his life down in their lives as his disciples, all of it to a few simple images. That's it. I think in the middle where they didn't see him, he went back and hung out with Martha and Mary and learned how to cook. <laughs> I think he got some like heavy duty cooking instructions. He's like, look, I need to learn how to teach them to cook because they're not going to know. And they need to know how to cook. So he went and hung out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, not probably not Lazarus. Um, and so that's what he did. And he learned how to cook, and he learned how to make them a meal because that's the most loving thing he could offer them at that time. So he was like, look, I know I got Anya about cooking and cleaning the house, but can you show me how to make a few things? No. <laughs> Two things. I just need to know how to clean and gut and season a fish, and I need to make bread. And we're not going to make that risen stuff, just no, like pan-fried bread. Can you show me how to do that? And they obliged him. So that's what I think he did in those couple of days. So, and, and I think that happened. And that was a miracle. That was Jesus' miracle. He asked and he learned how to cook in a couple of days. So that, anyway. So he made them breakfast. Because, I mean, unless he just had knowledge. But otherwise, we just, we don't see him cooking or anything. So that was some conversation I had this week, and I thought you would find that cute. But anyway, he made them a meal, and that was a gift to them. And it was an abundant meal with a heck of a lot of fish. So let's get back to what this means for our church and new disciples. And I'm new here, but Lynn, what's our mission statement? Drink your bodies and souls with the love of God. Yeah. I think that's what Jesus is asking us. When we have conversations with one another, I think that's always what we need to say. Well, are we doing this? And if it's not, we need to say, can we make it that? Can we flesh that out a little bit more? 
to say, is this activity somehow doing this? And if it's not, maybe we need to redirect our resources a little bit differently when we're visioning. It doesn't mean we don't do it somehow, and it doesn't mean, but maybe it's not exactly a mission of the church. But maybe it's a social activity, you know? For those of you that feel that Holy Week was so far away, let me remind you of the ways we attempted to nourish bodies and souls that week. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, we remembered the betrayal and the journey to the cross with an intimate soup supper. We blessed the animals with a special service, and they got a treat if they wanted it. We celebrated the risen one and watched the sunrise, culminating with a meal of waffles and songs. We worshiped in our sanctuary. We had an Easter egg hunt. And finally, we took a beautiful meal provided by all of you for 20 men to safe place, supplied by all of you, and their faces shone with the glory of God. How great is our God? All of this amidst missing folks celebrating with families elsewhere. Those people were missed and thought of. Friends, I don't want to remind you, but I think it's important there will be doubters in our midst. You will feel betrayed. Christ was betrayed, and it will ultimately be okay. We will grieve together, and we will celebrate joys together. As long as we come back to this table to receive nourishment and to offer nourishment to one another and to go out there and feed our neighbors, to feed the sheep, or nourish bodies and souls with the love of God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is what will continue to reorient us to the truth with a capital T. Love of God, love of neighbor, blues and yellows. That, that wasn't even planned. I just want to pick that up off the shelf. It was important enough for Jesus to forgive his betrayal and remind his apostles. It ought to be good enough for us to remind each other. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.